So this morning, as I said, we're going to be continuing on our, our sermon series on releasing everyone, looking at the pastoral letters uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote and drawing out various themes. We've been doing that over the last few months, foundational principles of biblical pastoral care and discipleship, a life following Jesus. That's what we've been doing over the, week, over the few, last few months. And this week is a real toughie. It's a real toughie. Uh, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to be definitely needing prayer this morning, okay? Because um, today we're addressing what the Bible says, what the Bible says, not what culture says, not what the Daily Mail says, what the Bible says about roles of men and women in the church, okay? Controversial stuff, actually, off offensive sometimes if you haven't totally understood what the Bible is getting at. But you know what? In Jubilee, we, don't, we, we take the Word of God seriously. We don't duck and dive these passages. Um, um, in fact, in a similar letter to, by the Apostle Paul, the writer of what we're about to read, in 2 Timothy 3.16, the Apostle Paul says, all, all, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God, you, me, everybody here who trusts in Jesus, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work that God has for us. That's what, that's what we're about, aren't we? As Christians, that's what we want, don't we? To be thoroughly equipped, Jubilee, for every good work. Receiving Jesus, restoring community, reaching out, reaching everyone, Growing the church. A big, big, a big, big, big job. A big God. Big faith. That's what we're about. So let's read the passage. If you've got a Bible, you might want to follow it in 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15, just to check what I'm saying. Two, one, uh, sorry, 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15. Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship the Lord. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Keep your hair on. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. When I read that, I can't... I keep hearing that word quiet, escalated and shouted. That's not what it's meant. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one to be deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing, the birth of Jesus if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. You know what? Over the years, I've found that more and more, the passages that offend me most, I've got to learn the most from. That's just been a fact of my life. This is one of them. So when I first read this, I thought, what? And I'm sure you have as well. Then I thought, why on earth is this in the Bible? And then eventually... I've calmed down, God has calmed me down and made me pray, made me study, made me work it out 
And the prayer was, why on earth, Lord, is this in the Bible? And I hope you'll do the same with me this, this morning. Teach me, Lord. Help me, Lord. I want that to be your prayer too this morning as we go through this. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are good. Thank you, Lord, that all Scripture is God-breathed and helpful for us. I thank you, Lord, that this is a tricky passage, but actually when we get into the roots of it, you are speaking life to us. You are speaking, um, you are speaking how it's meant to be. You are speaking uh, the life-giving uh, words of God, the gospel of Jesus, which Jesus died for. I pray, Lord God, that as we unpack this scripture, you'll help me. I pray, Lord God, that everybody will have the Holy Spirit upon them so that they can hear what this is, passage is all about and what it has to speak to us. If it offends us this morning, I pray, Lord God, that you will come and make those things real in our hearts. Change us, shape us. I pray, Holy Spirit, for people who don't know Jesus and are coming to the Bible for the first time, I pray, Lord God, as we unpack this scripture, I pray that they see something of how we address these difficult passages. We pray for grace in your name. Amen. So, there we go. Gosh. Uh, I've really found John Stott's commentary on this really helpful. Uh, the late John Stott now. He says there are two things. When you, when you kind of come to passages like this, he says there are two things that we need to consider when we come to hard passages like this. The first, he says, is the principle of harmony. Okay. God doesn't contradict himself. God is not, all, is not all over the place like I am, or maybe you are. He's consistent in what he teaches us throughout the whole Bible. So when we get to passage like, like, passages like this, we have to look at the whole Bible and say, what is the whole Bible teaching us? And then place what we have read in the context of what the whole Bible is telling us. Yeah? That's the first principle, very important principle. Because actually, if, you are, if you've got a real bee in your bonnet, bonnet about women and you've got a, you're a real kind of sexist, chauvinist male guy, you can take this passage and rip large. But actually, that's not what Christians are meant to do. That's not what this is about. So harmony. Secondly, John Stott describes the principle of History, that's what he describes it as. When we read the Bible, we have to understand and take into account that we have a God who isn't um, distant and far off. No, the word of God was not spoken in a cultural vacuum. And so when we study the Bible, we need to, uh, we need to take these things into context. What is the whole Bible saying? What are the cultural settings here? What are the historical settings here? How do we understand this in light of a good God who died on the cross and totally loves us and is totally all out for the salvation of humanity? That's, what, that's how we need to approach it. So, a few, um, so with that all in mind, a few things, a few comments that I have to say. Firstly, what is this passage just not saying? I'm going to labour this a little bit because it's very helpful in our culture. Okay. Well, it's definitely not saying God doesn't value women. It doesn't say that. Or that God somehow values men 
more than women. That's not what the principle of harmony is. We look at the whole Bible. Here gets us to conclude. When we look at the whole Bible, we actually see something different. We see a God who says men and women are equally cherished, don't we? Equally important to God. He does. God is not chauvinistic or feministic like our like a whole lot of a whole lot of people or situations we might deal with in the world. And to show us, Paul takes Timothy, you may have noticed that in this passage, he takes Timothy to the Garden of Eden, the perfect Garden of Eden. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not uh, the one to be deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became, became a sinner. What's he doing? What's he doing? Well, he's taking us back to creation to Adam and Eve, the perfect, perfect Garden of Eden. He's taking us out of all our high emotion, because there's a lot of high emotion about this subject, the cultural brainwashing that we see, the shouting media and disputes, our sin-torn humanity. He's taken us out of all of that, the, the reality of today, and asks us the question, what was it meant to be like? What was it meant to be like? And that's what the Garden of Eden tells us. That's what creation tells us. So, so let's go there for a bit. Now, you'll have noticed that in the creation story, in Genesis 1, God is making things one after another as you start reading the passage. And, he's, and as he's doing it, he's, get, he's getting drawn in. To, uh, and as he's doing it, he's, you, you, get, you can't help but getting drawn in to the excitement as, as each time he creates and he says, boy, this is good. This is good. Boy, this is good. This is wonderful. Oh, this is really good too as he's creating and creating and creating. Good, good, good. And we keep reading. Um, um, and, 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 and as we keep reading, we get the message, don't we? God's creation is good. And then after God creates a man, in all this talk of everything being good, 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 he says in this kind of car crash comment I sometimes feel as I'm reading the Bible, he, he says, look guys, it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. That's what it says. Guys, you should be offended here. Because God, God is looking you up and down and he says, hmm, not so good. Not exactly. We need a woman in the, in the equation. Me and Charlotte have had a few tensions as we've tried to grapple out our time and, and you know, how we work uh, uh, our ministry out. You know, there's been a few tensions in our marriage, in our family, um, as, you know, as, as, as often happens. And do you know, and you know what? I need, I need a godly, beautiful, faithful woman like her to show me what's wrong in my life. What needs to change? Where we're going? Do we need to change things a little bit? I just do, guys. You need women around you to influence, help, complement all you are. Guys, you're not the man God created you to be without women amongst you in the church speaking into your life and helping you, your community group leaders, maybe your parents, I don't know, and certainly if you're married, your wife. 
Now I hear this too when uh, God describes woman as the helper because that's the next bit of that phrase, wasn't it? Um, uh, he's created woman to be a helper. I, he- I, hear, th- I hear kind of um, some ladies getting a little bit upset at that too. They kind of read this as God created women to iron men's shirts. Or maybe to do the washing for men. That's not what this is saying. Culture might tell you that or make you interpret it that way, but that's not what God is saying here. He's actually deeply honouring and gracious too. You see, Moses, who wrote the book Genesis, um, he uses the word, the word he uses for helper here is, uh, is actually Ezer. E-Z-E-R, Ezer. Uh, and later on, he goes to name one of his sons, Eli Ezer, which means, my God is my helper. You know what? There's nothing flaccid or weak or subservient or diluted about uh, I'm making woman to be the helper for man. There just isn't. Because actually the parallel is how God helps us. God is saying I'm going to create the kind of woman for man that without her it's all actually going to go wrong for him. He needs her kind of helping like the kind of helping that God does for humanity and mankind. What about Jesus? Did he value women? Well, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? And there, that the, picture, well, the other picture showed us that. Sometimes we think Jesus chose 12 men to be his disciples. How sexist! I'm just knocking these questions off one by one because we're all thinking them. Well, if you're thinking that, you haven't read the Gospels. Yeah, he had 12 disciples, male disciples, but he also had a whole host of women who followed him around. Luke 8, Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women, Mary called Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the the manager of Herod's household. Get that. Susanna and many others, many others, these women were helping to support them. Helping, that that gracious, honouring, strong word again. Some of these women will have been, um, some of these women will have been famous leaders in the early church. Jesus was born to a woman. God, God himself, now that doesn't, often doesn't make a big deal in our culture, but God himself came into humanity through a woman. That will have been like, wow, in Jesus' day. Should be now. Again and again we see Jesus, as we read the stories of Jesus, the life of Jesus, affirming and honouring and lifting up men, uh, women, when men have knocked them down or society has knocked them down. The woman at the well, the woman who washes Jesus' feet, the woman caught in adultery, the way Jesus bigs up these women and honours these women, shows compassion uh, to the women. Uh, The way he shows compassion to the women is actually inspiring and shocking in his day. We need to get that. We need to get the principle of history. In fact, that's a common theme in the Gospels, isn't it? With Jesus and his disciples. He's regularly having a go at the men for not getting what he's saying. He's, telling them that, he's kind of telling them that their pride and their arrogance is getting in the way. But these women get it. Learn from them. They got who I am. They, they, uh, what I have come for. How to respond to me in humility. 
What about the Holy Spirit? God the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, when God pours out his presence on that amazing day when thousands and thousands of people get saved, what does Peter say about it? He says this, I will pour my spirit on all people, men and women, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And then we come to the Apostle Paul, because he wrote this after all. What does he think uh, about um, honoring and valuing women? Well, you know what? It shouldn't come as a surprise to us that he is no different, because he was a slave to Christ. In Romans 16, Paul greets the church and lists key people on his, on his uh, ministry team. And a third to half of that list are women. And I say that because we're not really sure whether all, whether, whether all of those names are women or men. Okay, well, that sounds a bit weird. A third to a half. These are the key people in Paul's ministry. Phoebe, a significant leader in the church, a deacon who Paul entrusts to take his apostolic letter from Ro- to Rome from Corinth. That's Priscilla who was involved with Paul in ministry and with her husband in teaching activity. The church meets in her home. There's Mary, there's Junius, there's Tryphena, there's Tryphosa. Sounds like a kind of food. There's Persis, another hard worker. There's Rufus's mum. There's Julia. There's Nerus's sister. These are all listed. All significant, honored, loved women to Paul and everything he's doing for the sake of the gospel. In the, in a Greco, in the Greco-Roman world, that despite singleness in women, Christianity gave it permission and purpose and dignity. In a world that discarded the widow, Christianity raised the essential importance of caring for her. In a world where, uh, where sons got all the inheritance, God pours out his sonship, his eternal treasures, his salvation, his dignity, his love on men and women breaking down divides, going all the way. That's what God thinks. That's how God sees it, Jubilee. No way does Christianity, Jesus, God, undervalue women. Rather, he cherishes both. He has purpose for both. He loves both. The principle of harmony. Okay? So then we get on to the passage. I've deliberately laboured that because in our culture it's so important to labour it. And it explains everything else in many ways. So um, what does it mean, the the passage? Well, Well, the thing it mainly is saying in some respects is, no, not in some respects, the thing it is, I've got to watch my words here. The thing it mainly is saying is that men are men and women are women. There is, there is a God-created difference. Not an inequality. No, both men and women are God's image bearers, equally honoured, we've said all that already, but they are different. That's what God tells us. That's how God created us. A lot of people don't like that. But as a, as a doctor, I assure, I assure you, they are different. As a dad who has girls and boys as kids, they are different. Yeah? 
And as in the Garden of Eden, you know what? That is a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. A thing to cherish, a thing to work out in the midst of the confusion of this world. Men and women are equal and different. So how can real men be real men? Well, Adam, in the Bible it tells us, Adam was created first. He is established in the Bible, in creation, as head, a representative to lead God's intentions on the earth. In Genesis, we start seeing God-given roles, if you like. Adam's headship becomes clear, and Eve coming alongside as his much, 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 much needed helper, as we said earlier, like God is a helper. But then we hit in Genesis 3, um, um, everything going wrong. This is where everything completely goes sideways. It goes from being very, very good to very, very, very bad. And what's fascinating is it starts actually with a gender role problem. Eve, our first mother, sins against God. God sins against God by reversing roles in her family, assuming leadership, headship. She, 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 she's making a decision that they both should disobey God. And so she, because he doesn't do anything, hear that, she steps up and starts to lead. And unfortunately, she leads in a bad direction. And Adam sits there idly by her, watching it all, quiet, passive, timid, cowardly, and does nothing. He doesn't take the God-given responsibility of his God-given headship that is required of his God-given manhood seriously. Guys, don't be passive in life. We all can be, can't we? Particularly in Euro Euro 2016 season whatever it's called. I don't watch football. Guys, don't be passive in the church. Don't be passive in your marriage. You see, being the head doesn't mean you're the king or the lord or the boss. It means you take full responsibility, even if it's not your fault. That's what it means to be head. Adam saw everything that was going on and did nothing. Romans 5, Romans 12, Romans 21. Because of one man's sin, the whole human race falls. That's what the Bible tells us. It's Adam's responsibility. In some ways, that was actually the first sin. Doing nothing. Passivity. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says this, another controversial uh, few lines in the Bible. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. There's nothing controversial about that. And the head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. All those three things are very important. That's a phenomenal statement that that you're seeing. It's a statement describing why this headship is actually so wonderful. It's saying that human authority is something that acts out and works out because man is under the authority of God himself, of Christ. When you're not under the gracious, loving, releasing authority of Christ, things will go wrong. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to hear this. Christ 
God himself, whatever you believe, needs to be your authority. It's also saying that godly submission is a really good thing that we see in the Godhead, actually. Not an issue of inequality. Don't get shirty about it, says God. That's what, that's what goes on in, 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 in the Godhead, in the Trinity. We see the Trinitarian economy of God. Yeah? Co-equal, co-eternal, but functionally different important. If it's good enough for God Jubilee, it's good enough for mankind. The head of Christ is God. Yeah? But you know what? As Christians in this room, even, even as I'm saying this, and I can see your faces, a lot of you will find this tough and difficult. We're so caught up in our culture, aren't we? But this shouldn't come as a surprise either, actually. Because God said it would happen. We would, we would find this difficult. Back to, the, back to the garden again in Genesis 3. We get the origin of gender wars. Conflict between man and woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Uh, and the woman. Between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers. It will be a generational thing. Your desire will be for your husband. And he will rule over you. We see that, don't we? In our culture. Now there's conflict. Now there's mistrust through not trusting in God. Now there's violence and abuse. Now there's fighting. Self-righteousness. Self-absorption. Uh, uh, self, self me, me, me. What can I get out of these men-women relationships? Human culture has got it wrong. God's kingdom culture has the answer. And that's what Jesus, by his death and resurrection, is bringing in. God's church, Jubilee, God's church, this church is to be a place where this is modelled and shown like a city on a hill, like a bright light for its beauty and its wonder, not its messed upness. God doesn't want conflict. He wants men to be when, men. See what it's saying in our passage? It says, verse 8, Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without angering or disputing. Holy hands. Paul is saying, guys, take your roles of responsibility in the uh, take your roles of responsibility in the church and if you're married in your marriage, seriously, don't get passive. Be active. Love your wife like Christ loved the church. All out, sacrificially. God has called us to great things, Jubilee. A church of 500 in the next 7 to 10 years or so. A church of more nations. A church nurturing the poor uh, and the vulnerable. A, a church bringing each other on in the journey together. A church demonstrating big family together. Those big things, hear this, those big, big things won't come about with a church of passive idle, cowardly men. It won't. No, I want you to lift up. I want me to play my part too. I want our elders to play our part. Lifting up holy hands. Being obedient to God's call. Being men of faith. I find this very challenging if I'm honest. I'm far from perfect as a lot of you know. We've got loads to learn together, haven't we? Men be men. 
says this passage. What about women? What does it say? I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles, no, or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Let me tell you what he's not saying. He doesn't want the women in Jubilee Church all to dress like Nanny McPhee. Praise the Lord. He doesn't want the women in this church to let it go, look terrible. No, it's a cultural thing, actually, that he's describing. He's saying, in a nutshell, and I won't go into lots of detail, but he's saying, in a nutshell, women, I want you to be godly women, not superficial, not swayed by culture or TV or the media, but swayed by holiness and godliness, as you see it in the Bible, as you see it in other godly men around, uh, women around you. You don't need to use your looks, the Apostle Paul is saying, to wield power. You don't need to model your image around what the magazines say or what men say, but rather what God says. Just read Proverbs 31, a beautiful passage in the Bible describing the woman of noble character, wonderful, compassionate, caring, diligent, honoring, creative, wise, faithful, strong, joyful, confident. Proverbs 31. And right at the end of Proverbs 31 comes this summary, and I haven't read this for a long time. Proverbs 31, it says, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. We want to praise women in Jubilee. We want to praise men in Jubilee. But it comes out of a life committed to God. Holiness. Godliness. We want men and women living out uh, the equal but beautifully different natures in the church and in the world. Declaring God's glory. Declaring the way God says it should work. How are you doing? Now let's get to the real, the tough bit. That wasn't the really tough bit already. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Val, tell me what you think. No. <laughs> Let me explain. Don't walk out. Don't throw anything, Val. <laughs> the people in Paul's day, would have also fallen off their chairs when they read this. But for different reasons to us, actually. Opposite reasons, actually, to some extent. Here, Paul isn't devaluing women. He's actually valuing them more than the people or the religious establishment of his day would have, would have, uh, would have honoured them in the culture that they lived in. This is, where, this is where John Stott's principle of history comes into play, that God speaks into our world in a historic and cultural uh, setting. You see, in Paul's day, it was the men who did all the religious stuff. I wish it was still the case. Not, not just the men. Men would gather in the meetings. The women would come along and, with their kids and look after them at the edge, uh, at the edge of the, the meeting place and kind of eventually turn up for the social bit and do all the cooking, etc. at the end. It was like that in the temple, actually. 
uh, when I grew up in, um, with my mom and dad in going to Hindu temple and the, that cultural setting, they would often chat and look after the kids on the edge of the meeting while the men did the spiritual acts, the important stuff. Church was a man thing in the early church. And, uh, in, in, church was a man thing as they came out of the culture of the past, not a woman thing. But Paul says, quiet. Paul says, quiet. This isn't right. I want more Phoebes to lead. I want more Priscilla's to teach. I want uh, you to learn. You're important no matter what the culture says. That's what it's about. We'll see it again in 1 Corinthians 14 where women, it says, be silent. Take this seriously. Don't just kind of be on the edge of, the, of, of what's going on in the presence of God. Actually, when people will have read this, it would have been culturally uplifting, culturally releasing, culturally shocking. Paul was saying, women, we need you, as well as the men. Pay attention. Silence. Quiet. Get stuck in. So what about the teaching bit? I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Oh, that's the pinnacle, isn't it? I hope you're feeling uplifted this morning. We've got to deal with these passages, haven't we? Context here is really important because I know some of you might be thinking, yeah, he's just making it up. He's just making it sound nice. He's just putting icing on a, on a dreadful cake. Actually, no, when you read the commentaries, when you really get down into the Greek and all that kind of stuff, this is actually what it's saying. And people in Paul's day would have had a totally opposite reaction to you. That's why he wrote it. Context here is really important. Paul is not saying women can't speak in the church. He's not even saying that women can't teach. We know that. We definitely know that. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is speaking. There's a big passage on it directly into how women should be speaking in the church because for them it's a new thing. How they should be praying and prophesying is teaching them. It can't be saying women can't teach either. There's loads of passages in the Bible where men and women are encouraged to teach. In Colossians 3.16 it says... Um, Paul is encouraging the whole church, men and women, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness uh, in your hearts to God. Titus 2, likewise teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. Then they can urge, teach the younger women various things about um, a godly life so that no one will malign the word of God. 1 Corinthians 14, when you come together, each of you, men and women, has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up by men and women contributing, committing, faithful. Actually, this, that, that section that we just read, that, that section that we read about women shouldn't be teaching is actually about church eldership. Okay. Now, the, the reason why we don't get this is the big problem is when we're trying to make sense of this passage, it's actually also a structural one. Let me explain. To help, to help people study, study this book and other books in the Bible, actually, someone in the Middle Ages decided to separate 
all this book into chapters and verses. And actually, that's been help, very helpful. But actually, it's also been unhelpful. And so when we read 1 Timothy 2, separate from 1 Timothy 3, it's actually one letter, we get a little bit confused. We don't get the flow of what Paul is saying. It's all one letter. And so what's in 1 Timothy, what's 1 Timothy 3 about? Well, it's about godly, ordered leadership in the church. It's about appointing elders, actually, in the church. That's what he's encouraging Timothy. It's about, look, you need eldership structures. Um, you need eldership structures here, Timothy, or you're going to get into difficulty. That's what Paul is saying. You need deacons, men and women too, all of them. Elders, deacons, men and women functioning together as God intended is the best way to lead the church. Again, it's not good, guys, to lead on your own. You need a team with clear functions so that we know what we're doing, what God has intended. Men and women. On the radio, there's a lot of debates about whether we should be having women vicars and women bishops and women ministers, etc. It's actually the wrong argument. Leadership in the church of God, biblically, comes through apostles, elders, and deacons. Men and women together on a mission with the full responsibility of the local church resting on the elders. That's, that's what we see in the Bible. That's what the Bible says. The question really should be, how do we make that happen? How do we make that work with all the conflict that we've described as a result of Genesis 3? You church, you eldership team, you leadership team need to work this through. And that's why as far as we see in the Bible, eldership is a male role only. Some churches might disagree with that. It's, but when, when I look at the Bible, when we look at the Bible, when others look at the Bible, eldership is an issue of headship function. We've already talked about headship. Like, and, and it's a good thing. It's a thing to be cherished. Like husbands to wives is a good thing. It's like God saying, I want you smaller households to be lived out well under the fathering, nurturing headship role of the man in the household. And I want the household of God, the church, to be lived out similarly under the loving, sacrificial headship of a few anointed men who have shown their ability or a degree of their ability to lead in their smaller households, ripped large in the church, doing what elders are called to do, displaying, these are the five Ds, of eldership, displaying, modeling godly character, defining and teaching, uh, defining the teaching and uh, practices of the church, lovingly disciplining those who swayed away from what the Bible says, directing the affairs of the church and delegating roles and responsibilities in this big, big, big team of men and women. That's what it's about. The church of God Jubilee is his big family. This bit of the passage is not so much about women teaching, but rather it's about, being the, ch it's about the church being led well with leaders under the authority of Jesus, modeling the life of Jesus uh, uh, to the church as best they can, being open and vulnerable, repenting 
I do a lot of that. Repenting and being shaped by God through their leadership lives. Beautifully coming together. Showing the world how God intended humanity to shape and influence the places and situations where God has put us. Through the beautiful, His beautiful church. You and me. Men and women together. Men, take this seriously. I'm going to end now. Men, take this seriously. Play your part. Don't be overbearing. Don't be passive. Be accountable to other men. Have friendships. Women, don't be distracted. Be faithful. God's helpers to humanity and in the church. Don't feel undervalued because God has chosen. Uh, don't, don't feel undervalued because God has chosen you as he chose Mary to be the wonderful godly woman who brings the saving work of Jesus to the earth. That's what that last bit about is actually, if you didn't get it. Women will be saved through childbearing. What an honor. Now, I know we're not Roman Catholics, but this morning I want to big up Mary as a beautiful godly woman who lived her very difficult call in life, faithfully and sacrificially. We don't worship Mary as God, but we honor the godliness of Mary. Thank you, Jesus, for Mary. Ladies in the church, what a great model. Together in team, through godly leadership, we live out, Jubilee, the beauty of the Garden of Eden, flourishing, fruitful, Beautiful. In a world that has gone terribly wrong, you'll find that out as you leave this room. Stand up, Jubilee. Take action. Men and women. Let's stand. If Bobby could come up, that would be great. We don't often talk about that, do we? But I just feel God says this is a releasing passage in the Bible. This is... I was talking to Shirley... Uh, yesterday? No. Friday night. And we were encouraging Shirley, can you start bringing on new worship leaders? And she said, can I really do that? Do I have permission? Of course you have permission. Of course she has permission. We want women in the church to stand up. We want men in the church to stand up released, be godly, be holy, be faithful and take us on this journey that God has called us to, all of us, men, women, families, children, everybody. Thank you, Lord.